4: Here we go. Nice and
5: quiet. Sound speeds, camera
1: rolling.
0: Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action.
1: I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
0: Making movies is hard. All right, welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel.
1: And I am Oleg Purcell.
0: This week, we have the directing duo of Jonathan Millett and Carrie Murnian. We had them on the show to talk about their latest film, Becky, starring Lulu Wilson, Joel McHale, and Kevin James. Becky came out over the weekend on Friday, June 5th on VOD and also in drive-ins around the country. And uh, John and Carrie have also directed the films uh, Bushwick, starring Dave Bautista, Cooties, starring Elijah Wood, and Rain Wilson, as well as episodes of the show The Offseason for ABC.
5: Take the risk know that sometimes that risk is not gonna be successful, but then be ready to do it again.
0: But before we get to John and Carrie.
2: Listen to me, television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you wanna hear, we lie like hell.
1: You wrote an article in Movie Maker Magazine. Holy shit. Oh my God, congratulations first off, that's awesome.
0: Thank you, I I wrote it like, uh, I think it was due May 1st. And it was published on Friday, which was May 30th, 29th. So it was really bizarre because they asked me to weigh in on the state of the industry. Uh, and And it was supposed to be for a print issue. And I wrote everything that I could write about, about the state of the industry, knowing that the industry is changing by the hour in the middle of a pandemic. And so I made lots of edits throughout. And then last week they came to me and they're like we probably shouldn't put this in the print issue because it'll be so out of date by July do you want to put it online and I'm like yeah I don't want to rewrite this and wait until July (laughs) and start like write a whole new thesis about the state of the industry in July so it got published and it I think of it as like a time capsule of the things that concern us in May 2020 uh, in the industry
1: right no, it's good. I, I read uh, the first page and then I'm reading <laughs> more it's now. three
0: pages long. It's, it's pretty so long. long. Yeah.
1: But uh, I like it. It's, uh, you know, it's very you. Um, and I think you have a lot of great information in it, which is awesome. Um, but like, what would be the one thing that you want people to take away from this article? If Let's say they're not going to read the whole thing.
0: I would say that in spite of me being the perennial pessimist of the show, the article is quite optimistic. And it says there's hope. There's hope for more eyeballs on your work. There's hope uh, that the doors will be open again uh, to productions. And there's hope that, um, you know, that we will be able to, like, get shit done. Uh, I just think it's dark. It's a dark situation that we're all in right now. We're very confused and it recognizes that. But that look on the bright side a little bit.
1: You know, there's, there's a lot of filmmakers right now who have films that um, should be in film festivals at the moment, but can't be because of the state of things. And, you know, I'm actually one of those filmmakers and my co-director, she wants to just release the movie in December and just be like, oh, let's just put it out online. We have our last film festival or our only really film festival like, you know scheduled for December. Let's just play that film festival assuming it pl- it happens and then release the movie online. And I'm almost thinking like well we just basically missed a whole season. Like should we just wait till 2021 to resubmit to film festivals and try again or What's the best for, especially for a short film, like what should people be doing now? Should we just put them all online and get on with our lives and make new movies? Like, I don't know. What what should we be doing?
0: I love that you're asking about film festivals because that's actually our topic for Soap Dish today as well. So it's like all related. I am of the belief that, um, well, first of all, if it's a high profile film festival, it needs to be your premiere if it's a feature. And if Mm. you've already premiered at a smaller film festival, those high profile film festivals are not going to look at you. So you don't have to worry about... A whole other year of submissions if you've already premiered in order to be considered by the larger, more prominent, prestigious film festivals. And then the other thing is, like, what do you, what value are you deriving from these film festivals? What I talk about in the article is, like, when it's not a film festival that um, is thought of as one that shapes the market, like, if it's one... If it's not one that like acquisitions heads and programmers and um, distributors and marketers or whatever that they're not attending, then what are you deriving out of it? So if you're going to delay the release of your film an entire year, why? Why are you doing that? What are you getting out of it? Are you getting the customer or audience information of the people who are attending your screenings? Are those laurels really that important? I think there are a lot of filmmakers who think like a lot of small festival laurels make like come, comb together and, and glom together to become one <laughs> big festival laurel. Right. Uh, and I don't think that's true. If you look at a poster, you look at a trailer and you see the names of the festivals, you're going to be branded as a smaller film versus a very popular smaller film. It's unfortunate, but there is bias. But I would also wonder, is this a short arc or is this...
1: This is a short, so yeah. um, that I mean for shorts, not it? It seems to me that like the whole thing about festivals is to get that recognition that your film is, you know, worthy of being clicked on. You know, when it's online. So if like you have a bunch of laurels, like to me, it doesn't necessarily matter if you have like an A lister laurel on there, but if you just have a bunch of laurels, like someone who's like sifting through Vimeo or YouTube, is probably more likely to click on your film if it's got laurels on it, right? Versus That's no laurels. Because I'm I looking I at know. it,
0: I'm looking at it from the perspective of acquisitions, not of um, a viewer. So you're, you're probably right. Like uh, I'm probably going to be drawn to something that's award winning versus non award winning. If two products are put in front of me
1: because you're not even like reading what the laurels are if they're so small if there's that many of them you're not going to like zoom in to be like oh is that a film festival i've heard of you're just going to either click on it or you're going to pass on to the next one i mean i
0: am because i'm judgy but i think most (laughs) people are kind and they're probably just like oh this person really tried really hard yeah if it's like a vimeo (laughs) situation i get that i totally get that but it is just a laurel, right? You could just make up your own laurels. You could just like go to Photoshop and like add 15 laurels from the right. Huntington Beach. What is it? I love Nathan for you. It's one, it's my favorite show of uh, all yeah. time other than Cheers. And um, it's like the East Los Angeles International Film Festival. Like they just made up their own film festival for the episode. I think like you could do that too.
1: Well, part of the value that I kind of think from the laurels and the film festivals, too, is like getting that community behind your film when it does hit online. And that's something that I did with Strange Thing was when I when I had the premiere, I emailed every all the film festivals that I played at and said, hey, we're releasing the movie online on Monday. Will you do a repost or will you tweet about it or something? And most film festivals did. And I kind of think that was like helpful in getting our 20,000 views that we got the first week, you know, was that all these different communities were tweeting about it and more people were able to see it that way. I think Um, you have
0: far more expertise in this than I do when it comes to, (laughs) I mean, like, really, I've done maybe one to two shorts in the festival world and I barely you know, tap this. Right.
1: I don't know. It just to me, it's like that's the value of film festivals for a short filmmaker is that you get the laurels and then you get the network expansion. Right. Which is something that you are uh, not, you know, knowledgeable in. Like, you know, you get a lot of, uh, you know, eyeballs from going to festivals. Right. Even for a feature, you know, collecting those emails or whatever. Um, So, I don't know. I just kind of feel like maybe that's really important for a short film versus a feature where, like, if you do get the opportunity to sell it before it does its festival run in this climate where people really want content. If you have those connections, if you can get it to somebody who wants to buy it from you, you might as well and skip the film festivals. But maybe I'm being too optimistic there, too. Maybe us filmmakers who have features are also going to just be waiting for 2021 to do our film festival runs so we can you know, do the same dance, like get into Sundance or South by Southwest or whatever big film festival we can and then get the best, you know, buyer that we can and, and all that, that stuff. But
0: well, it's also budget. Right. If you really do have a few hundred extra dollars to submit to those film festivals and it's not going to hurt you and you really want to see if you if your film gets programmed and it's like a something that's going to poke at you until until you do it, right. then, you know, go for it, extend your festival run. I certainly feel with features, I don't think we should be delaying. If your film is done and it's beautiful and it's finished and you're proud of it, you should submit to festivals this year. They may not be in-person events but if you wait a year you're going to be the film that's a year older competing with newer films that have uh the recency effect going for them that are in you know the the fleas and the ears of programmers and it's going to be harder for you to find your premiere I think
1: we also have this article about Netflix buying the Egyptian Theater. Um, does this matter to us at all? I mean, <laughs> it does. does. It does. Why does it matter? I want to know why.
0: One of the issues with um, like something like Roma or like whatever Netflix produced features that wanna be in the Oscar race is that they have to be reliant on exhibitors in order to have that week long theatrical run in LA and New York. That's one of the requirements of, of qualifying for the Oscars. And there were a few fest there were a few art houses, I think it was like Regal at AMC, that have issues with playing Uh, Netflix content. But basically like a lot of films try to do a 90 day exclusive window at a at a theater uh, before they go online. And that benefits the theater owners because it means that like that's the only way audiences can see that content. And Netflix's whole business model is to be available online. Right. So by owning the Egyptian theater, they've just landed their L.A. theatrical home so if they want to qualify they just program their film for a week in that theater and then they're you know they've got their la requirement done so it's it's a cheat and they have enough money in order to cheat the system but it's also cool because we should be more open to different release patterns we should be allowing different companies to do what they want to do and to get the content to the audiences that they want to get to so it's yet again a complicated problem to be involved
1: right well i mean i i guess to me you know just someone who doesn't follow this stuff that closely it's like they you know roma was out in theaters whatever it was one week two weeks before it came out on netflix same with the irishman you know and i i mean i don't know how many theaters it was in but i know there was at least a couple theaters in my area that i could go see it at you know maybe it wasn't as wide of a release as other films but um I don't know. I guess maybe we'll be seeing more smaller budget Netflix movies also being, you know, given these one week runs so they can like have a bunch more movies qualify. I guess. Is that is that the deal?
0: Maybe. Well, I think the other issue also is the Egyptian theater is like an incredibly, you know, wonderful historical landmark in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And it traditionally programs a lot of like um You know, older classic films, cult films, special events. And I think the fear and the worry is, are these theaters going to lose programming power to do what they want if a company like Netflix owns them and is prioritizing their legacy over, like, cinematic history (laughs) legacy? Right,
1: right. Well, I I read in the article that the, um, whatever they're called, American Cinematheque or whatever. Cinematheque. yeah the people who've been programming for the egyptian already they're still going to get their weekend slots and that the netflix people are just going to program during the week i don't know if that's going to stay true or not but that's what the claim is so hopefully we'll get the best of both worlds we'll still get the classic films and then we'll get a bunch of other movies as well which you know as a moviegoer like the, the chances to see more movies of the classic theater that just sounds good to me right
0: Absolutely, I also think it's really funny because all of us are like, "Will people go to the movies?" I don't know. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and then like this weekend, we're like massive protests and crowds where people just like left their houses in droves, and then Netflix buys a movie theater, and it's like, oh we're we're just deciding that we're opening up like it just sounds like this is just a symptom of we're opening up the gates now when people are flooding the streets and going to movie theaters
1: i'll tell you as soon as my theater down the street from me the grand lake theater opens up i'm gonna be there man first day that i can buy a ticket i am gonna be in that movie theater watching a movie um so i can't wait for that to happen i I drive by (laughs) I drive by and they, they have like where clothes will be back sign on it. I'm just like waiting for the day where it says we're open again.
0: <laughs> I love that. Someone like a lot of people ask like, hey, Liz, what do you think? Do you think we'll be able to people will go to the movies? And I just I get nervous and I think about the worst of humanity and I think about all our fears <laughs> and I like that you're not living in that culture of fear. You're going to be safe. All right, and right. You're going to socially distant, but distance yourself. But you're going to enjoy like this incredibly yeah. important thing in our lives.
1: I got. I just love the movie theater so much. I can't imagine not taking the chance to to be in it as much as I can, <laughs> as soon as I can.
0: <laughs> and also Wonder Woman. Oh my God, Wonder. Oh my Woman. God,
1: Wonder Woman. Tenant, Wonder Woman. Jeez, it's gonna be good. So Liz, you've got mail.
2: My breath catches in my chest until so I hear three little words: "You've got mail."
1: Okay, so we've got a new iTunes review. Huzzah! Huzzah! i'm very excited about this so this is a review is titled best filmmaking podcast by far five stars by john Filipko on may 22nd 2020 uh, you might remember john wrote us um a question uh, a few weeks ago that we answered and yeah thanks john for uh giving us a review here we go this podcast is genuine honest and comforting period I've been listening since the day of Timothy and Ulrich, and was weary at the loss of Timothy, but glad to say it's kept its charm and pizzazz due to Ulrich's charisma and passion. Wow, uh, some yeah, I know <laughs> it gets worse uh, or better. Um, some great guest hosts and guests, and now Liz is a nice balance with Ulrich, so it's still my favorite movie-making <laughs> podcast and podcasts in general. I like the balance of Timothy's realistic, sometimes bordering on negative takes and Alrick's optimism, although I would say that Alrick is plenty realistic and by no means a Pollyanna. Um, I don't know what really Pollyanna means, um, but.
0: Pollyanna, it's you.
1: It's me. But but is that a bad thing to be a Pollyanna? No, or?
0: I mean, some people say it as like an unrealistic, idealistic, happy Positive individual.
1: Oh, I see. But he's saying I'm not one. So that's good, I guess. Yeah,
0: it's a compliment. He's complimenting you.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, through the years, listening has made me feel like I am still in the world of low budget filmmaking, even when it has taken the backseat. They never make filmmaking seem exclusive or unattainable. Instead, they just break things down plain and simple, and it is perfect to keep me motivated through the lulls. It's not too cheerleaderly, like, you can do it if you keep trying. Just believe, and your dreams will come true. I don't like that either. It's a good balance. <laughs> Listening to this <laughs> podcast has always made the world of the indie films festival circuit seem so fun and exciting and very attainable if you put the work in. It always makes me want to get back into that world because they are so excited about it and make it sound so cool. Even when I am doing other work, I'm always connected to filmmaking, if by not much else, by this podcast. Great work. Love you guys. Ulrich, you rock, man.
0: Oh my God, John. Wow, so John. Nice. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much. Really sweet, sweet review. And uh, I'm glad that we make it sound attainable and, uh, you know, approachable filmmaking, that is, because it really is. It just takes a lot of hard work.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Also, what I learned from this is that my my negativity and pessimism is not new to you, Ulrich. And that I mean, like, I didn't really think Timothy was. Um, A Pessimist but I guess he always Was like pushing people to get to the answers And get to the bottom of He's I don't know I think Maybe that's why this works Is because I'm somewhat (laughs) negative Akin to Timothy's Somewhat negativity
1: Yeah but you're less negative than Timothy Ever was I think Um, But uh, you know I mean, you definitely have your moments of pessimism, yeah. pessimism <laughs> you know, and darkness, um, but uh, you do ask the similar kind of like emotional questions um, that Timothy would always ask. Like you always love to ask the question, like, you know, you're really fancy. You've got all these <laughs> amazing things, but do you feel like you've made it? That's like a total Timothy question right there. Um, so I love that you asked that question. It's great. But yeah. Uh, If you guys want to leave an iTunes review, you have to answer the call.
3: You've got the best team of people in this whole city working to find you. But in order for us
0: to help you, I need you to help me.
1: Oh, man. I didn't write it down here, but we have a new patron this week on our Patreon page. Yeah. Um, Oh, and
0: the pins. We should talk about the
1: pins. Oh, the pins. The pins are here. Oh, my gosh. Taylor Morden. Thank you so much, Taylor.
0: I like Taylor.
1: Taylor's great. Taylor is like a longtime listener and friend of the show. Um, and yeah, so honored that you uh, are giving us some love, Taylor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if you want to be like Taylor, you can go to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash podcast. And soon you will see a wonderful new thing on there. Uh, it's our enamel pins
0: designed by Lucas Coleshaw.
1: Liz, tell us about these pins.
0: Uh, they're gorgeous so they are they are uh, based off of a design by Lucas Colshaw who did the logo for Make moves' this hard podcast and they are enamel made by wizard pins and we have forty um 40 exclusive pins and if they are if they go fast we'll get more. And we're pricing them at nine dollars each, which is on par with what Etsy <laughs> prices <laughs> their they will. Uh, and we want to make sure that we're not that we're rewarding those who are willing to invest in our podcast. We want to give you something um, in exchange. So thank you in advance. And uh, I think they're badass. I plan on putting them on lots of bags and jackets.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to get mine. I'm really excited about it. And, uh, you know, if you want to up your, um, you know, contrib- contribution for a month or two to $9, you'll get a pin. If you want to be a brand new person who has not been a patron to the show before and throw us $9, bucks, you will get a pin. And then if you want to lower it down to $4, $1, $5, whatever dollars, that's fine too. But uh, yeah, we just love to have you guys on our team. And uh, yeah, this is a really beautiful pin. I haven't seen it in person yet, but the photo really, like the colors are awesome. So yeah, I can't wait to see these things get out to people. And uh, when you get yours, once we have them posted, you should take a photo and send it to us. And uh, let us know how you are flaunting it or even if you just put it on your desk. That's fine too. (laughs) Um, Oh, and also, if you want to be like John Filippo, Filippo, John Filippo, I am so sorry, John. You can leave us an iTunes review, um, which would be really, really great. And it could be five stars like John's was, or it could be four stars, or whatever stars you want. Um, Rate your
0: what your heart tells you to rate. What
1: your heart says exactly. And if you don't want to write a review, if that's too much uh, to do, you can also just leave us a rating. Those are also great. Um, And if you'd like, you can also send us a question or a topic suggestion or comment, uh, you know, hopefully not insult, hopefully not too much tough criticism, but really whatever you want to us. And we'll read it on the show Uh, during this segment or not this segment, the segment before this, the You've Got Mail segment. And, uh, yeah, where do you send that uh, email and question, do you say? You send it to podcast at com? And, yeah, Liz, anything else you want to shout out or uh, talk about during this segment? No. Soap dish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Laurie Craven, and I'm an actress. <laughs>
3: an actress? Really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon,
0: and I'm a bitch. I'm a bitch. Okay, cool. Um, so... <laughs> love that sound but it's so great. Oh it's
1: so great.
0: Um, Okay so for today's Soap Dish I wanted to talk about film festivals uh, which is crazy to talk about in this economy. We're in the middle of a pandemic where a lot of film festivals are being canceled or brought online but I still think that as filmmakers, we are providing the value and the entire foundation on which the film festival is based. And so I think very often we just say yes and we don't ask any follow up questions to the people who are curating our work in the festivals. So I just wanted to give some suggestions of things to bring up when you're talking about, when you're talking to someone about whether to be in their festival and, um, and these things may benefit you. So uh, the first thing is ask if there's a screening fee. Very often, if you're Liz Manichel, there will not be a screening fee for you, <laughs> um, but you should always ask. You should always set up the expectation and uh, the conversation. you you got to plant this seed. Uh, a lot of programmers will pay for some high profile content. Uh, there are actually entire agencies and companies that are devoted to getting screening fees and speaker fees for festival appearances uh, so they're not always expecting the individual filmmaker to request it but it's it is something that they've been trained to handle and sometimes there's a yes sometimes they say yes sometimes they say if it's a premiere sometimes they say there's a long list of what could happen after you ask if there's a screening fee uh, but you should ask
1: So should you ask, like like you're saying, after you pay to submit and after you get in, then you should ask if you're going to get a fee for this?
0: Before you say yes. Before you say... Before you
1: say yes. Okay. Okay.
0: I've found in my life, uh, just doing these two features, usually... um, if it's a higher profile festival, of which I've only been included in a few, uh, and they're probably more mid-tier, let's be honest, they'll give me a phone call or they'll do a private email exchange outside of Film Freeway or without a box. They won't... But if it's a lower tier, tier film festival where they have less staff and they need to use a more automated process and there's less of a personal touch uh, because they're, they're just like working their asses off constantly, they're usually just this automated process. You're invited to the film festival. You say yes via Google form. But what I'm suggesting is you set a phone call with um, those higher profile opportunities and you say, A, is there a screening fee? B, um, are you covering travel and or accommodations? C, what dates are you looking at? Because I'd really want a uh, a very, you know, I want X screening time because it works with my schedule and the schedule of the talent that I'll be bringing. Try to get those more uh, valuable screening times and don't just uh, You know, I'm trying to think of don't just allow yourself to be pushed into those open slots, but try to vie for a valuable screening time.
1: So you went like 8 p.m. on a Friday, not 9 a.m. on a Sunday.
0: Yeah, I would say avoid any morning screening times. I think... If you look at afternoon on the weekends, those are actually really good. And Mm. even late morning, possibly, like 11 a.m. on the weekends would be fine. Um, Yes, the Friday, Saturday night uh, screenings would be solid, but it's also about venue, too. So you can always... Uh, Talk with them. uh, What kind of a venue are you thinking of putting us in and they may uh, create some sort of trade off where they put you in a fabulous venue, but a less attractive time and you think about what's what's it worth to you. Um, In addition to that, you want to ask the festival uh, to connect you with their press office or to request a press list. Uh, Usually festivals will have a press list of just all the journalists who are going to be attending and you don't necessarily need a publicist. You can just email all those journalists yourselves and ask them to cover your film. So Mm. there and I didn't even know about that till my former boss, Peter Broderick, would recommend filmmakers do that. This is like this hidden secret to me, this press office, this press list. So before you say yes, remember, you're bringing the value to the film festival. What are they going to do to highlight your work? obviously you're going to be grateful you're going to be as accommodating as possible and kind when you talk to these people but um, recognize that you're you're important too
1: Uh, and then do you think this is something that we should be doing as uh, filmmakers with shorts or just filmmakers with features
0: I think you have a little bit less leverage as short as a shorts filmmaker but I think you should be asking um, you know what is the screening time? What other films are you putting me with? Usually, I'm in. All right, you would know this way more than I do, but there's like a pattern to programming shorts. They'll they'll have a heady, serious short, and they'll move their way up to a more light hearted fare within the same programming block or they'll do a thematic programming block. But maybe you ask those questions of like, how are you programming the block of the films? Am I first? Am I last? What is the order? And maybe there's a way where if it's not programmed tonally, you can negotiate your way to be not in the middle. I think the middle is the toughest part.
1: Why is the middle the toughest in your mind?
0: I think this is and this is all actually this is very subjective <laughs> it's not like I read some study on sure. this but when I'm going and I'm watching shorts I'm paint I'm my energy and my tension is like more wrapped at the beginning like I'm full of energy I'm ready for the night right I'm ready for the afternoon uh, by the end. I've noticed that a lot of strong pieces are put at the end as well because it's like you're leading up to this seminal piece. You want people to leave feeling happy, feeling strong, feeling touched and emotional. Um, People may get up in the middle to use the restroom to get a drink. I think uh, it seems to be... That case, but I know that there's very different reasons why people program the way they do, and they may put a really strong short in the middle. I'm just realizing now there are people listening and saying, "Well, I've always been in the middle, and I don't want to say to them that they have a <laughs> a, a weak film." But I I think you want to be in the beginning or the end.
1: It's interesting because like there's two ways you could look at it, right? Where it's like the beginning, it's like yes, that's the first thing that you see, so. There'll be a lot of people, you know, in their seats. Like, no one has walked out to go to the next screening yet. You know, like, you have a fresh uh, set of eyeballs, all those reasons. But then you look at it as, like, you know... It's like they're the earlier films are the warm up films and then the last film is like the headliner. Right. So then, like, you mm. would want to be last because that's the biggest, most important of all the programmed films. Right. Um, but then but I can make the argument for the first film that, like, people are coming in late. That's people right. are still like, you know, just getting their popcorn and their sodas. And maybe they're going to miss the first film because they're you know, people are people and people are late and people are lazy. You know, and that's just something that happens. Yeah, Maybe you you want to be
0: second. Maybe you're like, oh, I want to be second.
1: (laughs) But I've been programmed in the middle a lot. And then sometimes in the middle, it's like you have the people who have like, okay, like the first film was great. Like, we just saw a film or two that maybe, you know, wasn't as strong or whatever. And then, like, if you're in the middle, it's like you could win the audience over with your movie and be, like, the highlight. And then when people walk away, it's like, yeah, the, the last movie was good. The first movie was pretty good. But that one in the middle, what was that one? <laughs> and then they look up your movie because they're like, I really want to know what that one was that was, like, hidden amongst all the movies. So, I mean, I feel like there's a million ways you can it's sort so of many. twist this thing. Um, but I just think it's interesting. Like, I think I'd rather be either... In the middle or, or the, the end. end, kind of nearer the end, probably, because I think in the beginning, it's like people are just not even, they're just getting ready. You know, they're not even really in the short film mindset yet. But like they get trained after a couple movies and then it's like, OK, now we're ready for to really understand or really digest this movie. You I know? think
0: that's the realistic way of looking at it. But I think when you're in the dark programming your your slate, you know, of short films, I think there's this idealism of like, oh, we're going to pick this strong short film and we're going to grab them immediately. Yeah, and then we're going to get them from the beginning. And but you're right. Ultimately, people are always looking they're always
1: late yeah so I guess it's probably up to like the individual filmmaker right to decide what they think is important you know mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah well any any last things to say about film festivals and you know what we should be asking the, the day that we do get into the film festivals
0: I think in general I just want people to ask questions without just saying yes and then asking the question remembering that they have the most leverage before they say yes to anything and to get what they want out of the festival experience what about truth? What about the reality?
2: What about the way the old ending tested in Canoga Park?
0: The player. Player,
1: player. <laughs> I love it. What, 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 do you, what do you have today, Liz?
0: Today we asked two filmmakers what was the moment they realized they wanted to be in film and describe that moment. And we have Zoe Malhotra, who's actually my co-worker at Picture Motion. She's a documentary filmmaker and who happens to work in impact distribution. And then we have the all-knowing, all-entertaining Jessica Ellis.
2: My name is Zoe Malhotra, and I am a film director um, based in Los Angeles. And I will say that I always grew up making movie trailers and little videos with my siblings, but I think the moment I realized that I really wanted to work in film was when I was directing a play in high school and I had such an amazing experience working with actors and all the different um, facets of the production. And then uh, the second it was over, I was so sad that I didn't have any record of it because it was just a live event. And then I realized that because I love that experience so much that this is something I could these are kind of similar skill sets that I could transfer over into filmmaking and if I was in filmmaking I would always have record of the finished project product as a film um so I'll say that that was probably the most strongest and definitive moment of giving myself a direction of where I wanted to work in and why that would have been a film (laughs) My
3: name is Jessica Ellis. I am a writer and director. The moment that I knew I wanted to be in film, I was in college at UCLA studying playwriting. I had come up in theater doing acting and gotten into writing gradually and transferred to UCLA in their playwriting program and I was getting really frustrated because it seemed like there was no way to make plays better (laughs) when you wrote them because there is no formal structure to plays there's a lot of experimentation, and it was driving me crazy. And so for credit, I took a, a screenwriting class just to, to fill in a couple of extra credits that I needed. And the minute they pulled out the three-act structure on me, I fell completely in love. Because it wasn't just a way to tell stories. It was a way to refine your stories once you got through the initial part of figuring out what the idea was. And from that moment on, I I never looked back. <laughs> I haven't written a play since graduation. And, you know, sometimes you wander around for a while in the arts before you find where you really belong. And for me, it was an intro to screenwriting class.
1: I, I kind of want to ask you, did you have a moment where you knew you wanted to be in filmmaking?
0: I do, but it's like my college essay question. It's like, um, <laughs> it's very pretentious and it's very scripted, but... I saw this movie called Stolen Kisses by Francois Truffaut, it's such a, I really wish it were Die Hard. I wish I was saying I saw Die Hard, but I saw this pretentious <laughs> French film. And I there's this moment where the character looks directly into the lens. And when I was 16, I was like, they're looking at me, it's me, and I felt so touched by the film in that moment that I was like, I wanna do that. I wanna touch someone in that way. And so I um, decided I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 16.
1: Oh, amazing. I love it. You have
0: to tell your story.
1: Um, So I always loved movies. Movies are like my favorite thing my whole life. Um, But I never really thought I could make one because I never had a camera or anything like that. Um, And I lived in Berkeley, not in Hollywood. So Hollywood seemed like a fancy place somewhere off else (laughs) in the world where people made movies and that was not open to me. You know, is how I felt. And then... In high school, we had a video production program, and at 16, you could get into it. And I was a little bit older for my class. So when I was a sophomore, I was eligible to be in my uh, video production class. So I took it three years and just fell in love and started making movies um, at 16, 17, 18. And then I watched Do the Right Thing in one of those classes. And I think... You know, I mean, there's a lot of movies that I attribute to like loving film and, you know, the kinds of movies I want to make. But I think just watching a young Spike Lee, like direct and act in this movie that is like such a classic and the Dutch angles and just the creativity of that film and the, the I guess, I don't know, uh, point of so view and perspective, you yeah. know, and then it really felt like someone was talking to me through that movie I, I just I, th- I just was like really into it. and I was like, OK, like I really want to give this a shot and see what I can do and just never look back since then.
0: Oh, so we both were inspired by movies. Yeah, to be absolutely. In the
1: movies. I never really talk about Do the Right Thing being an important movie for me. But like, you know, just thinking about it, being in that high school uh, film class, like as a junior or senior or whatever, I was shown that movie, I think it was as a junior uh, I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, this is crazy. Wait, Black we were both and white. around the
0: same age. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's funny. It's that interesting. Is nuts. I guess uh, without further ado, let's get to John and Carrie. John and Carrie, welcome to the show. Congratulations on Becky. I just saw it on Friday. It was excellent. Thank you. We have a series of rapid fire questions. First one, for Becky, how many days did you guys shoot? Uh, 25.
0: Amazing. What was the rough budget?
4: Under five.
1: And how long did you work on it from the inception to it being released? Uh, a bajillion years. No,
4: um, <laughs> maybe uh, well, say probably two years. A, a year and a half to two years of development. And then we started filming last summer and it's pretty much just completed and getting released now, which is this summer, so. I'm bad at math, but maybe uh, two and a half, three years at all.
0: That's not that long. How many people were on set?
4: That fluctuated a lot. Um, a pretty standard indie crew, I think. Uh, I don't know. Kara, do you
5: know that exact number? I would think it's around, like, between 15 and 75, like, around there, like, with all the actors and everything.
1: And then last question, out of all your projects, how difficult was this one?
4: <laughs> oh, they all have their own challenges. Uh, this one it kind of ticked all the boxes. So uh, this, this was a tough one.
1: Just to kind of kick things off, like this is your fir- third feature as a directing team. Um, and I just wanted to kind of hear the story of how you got this film made and like, like, what does that mean? Like after you've made two successful features, like how, how difficult, how challenging is it to get the third one going?
4: Yeah, it's our third feature. And I think we come at, we came at the, um, the industry, A little bit uh, from the outside, Um, we came at it from kind of animation, advertising, and just doing our own thing. Just, you know, pure love of of making uh, stuff. And we made a short film called Boob uh, that got into South by Southwest. From there, we got that got recognized by Elijah Wood and the the Spectrovision guys. And uh, we pitched uh, doing cooties and, you know, that that alone was like kind of a crazy thing at the time for us it was like we got a call out of nowhere after we did the short and it, it almost seemed like a joke call it was um it was josh waller at the time and he said he was working with all these people and uh, it just didn't seem real and we hung up we 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 uh kind of let it process then we you know f- figured out it was real we ended up pitching we spent a lot of time in that original pitch um, and then ultimately we didn't win that original pitch for Cooties. Um, and a, a, a long time went by and whatever, for whatever reasons, the original um, director they chose fell out. Um, and then we, we got the job and it wasn't like anything glamorous or anything. It was like, are you guys ready to do this? Can you fly out to LA tomorrow? <laughs> and we, we, uh, we were like, hell yeah. We pretty much dropped everything. We, we had our own company at that time. We dropped everything to uh, just run out and uh, start directing this movie. Um, so, sorry, I'm taking the long-winded approach here. But um, yeah, so, you know, f- fast forward a few years after we've released two films, we kept waiting for things to get easier for us. And I think um, to a certain extent, it did. We have a, a UTA as our, uh, our agents, and we have um, great managers, and they've kind of helped bring us projects. They helped uh, build the cast on this project. And so in a way, there was a lot of help getting this made, um, which I don't think we would have had if we, you know, if we didn't have the agent and um, but still in the end, it's, it's, it's a long, slow process to get to get a indie film made because you got to get the casting, you got to get the financing and um, it, it's still a lot of work.
0: I know that you met in school, but how did you know that you two were well fitted to be business partners, to pe- to be co-directors? How do you divide up the work? Can you talk a little bit about the inception of your relationship?
4: Um, yeah, it, you know, it was a bit organic. We, we really did start. Um, we started zines and things like that while we were in school, um, kind of like at the cusp of all the Internet stuff, which is obviously dating us a little bit. Um but we we just started working together on creative things, like anything that was creative, uh, whether it was filming or animation. And for the most part, all of the things that we really started collaborating on were um, things like animation that needed more than one director, just kind of like directing in a typical sense. Um, so for us, it just made sense to collaborate. And as we started experimenting more and more with live action, the collaborations just continued to be, um, both of us directing. Um, and then, you know, like I said, we were, we came at it from just the place of creating. So as we learned that like there was usually just one director. And when we finally went to direct cooties, we had to go in front of the DGA to explain how we direct as a team. And it, it was, it was all kind of just like, Oh, well, I didn't know. There were specific rules about this. We are just <laughs> making stuff. Um, but in the end, after three feature films and a bazillion commercials, we've kind of fine-tuned our process a bit, and um, I think it does come from a lot of experience, a lot of trial and error, uh, a lot of trust, and um, just organically again uh, how we have found it best to to manage bigger crews and big, bigger productions.
5: And, and we and we prep a lot. We. We do a lot, of, like do a lot of storyboards. We kind of talk about things a lot, so that when we go on set, you know, we know what our we know what our our goal is for that day. And um, you know, one of us will take the lead and be the one that kind of is the one that people can go to, and the other one kind of almost acts as a co-director. Um, one of us will stay by the by the monitors while the other one is with the actors. So it kind of gives us a sense of that we can cover everything and we can actually move faster that way, um, especially on a kind of a smaller movie where. You don't have, you don't have the time to like um, work with the actors and then you know walk back to the monitors and have the the stuff replay to see what it, see how it looked. We don't have time to do that. So when with us we can actually you know um, both of us can be at both spots at the same time, which we don't now now that we've done it we don't know how single directors actually get through an indie movie because you kind of get you have to sacrifice one thing or the other where you have to sacrifice either being with the actors or being with the cinematographer while they um you know look at the monitor so it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to do but we found actually kind of works better
4: and and the way we do that is we have the um we have the sound of the set you know the, the the typical sound that you listen to as a director um of the actors talking and whatever sounds on set in one ear and then in the other ear we have a comtech. so carrie and i have our own channel and we can communicate back and forth and um it ends up being that there's a lot of cables and things dangling out of your <laughs> face, but uh, it it's it, it does save a lot of time and it saves a lot of energy because as a director you end up you know standing on your feet all day and it's exhausting as it is, and you know not having to run back and forth to Video Village, um, adding about you know ten thousand extra steps a day uh, definitely uh, saves us mentally and physically.
5: Just just one one little small thing is that you know we there are these um, I know how most single directors work is that they um, they have a little monitor that they carry with them. There's the, the kind of mobile monitors, but that's only, you know, if you're, if you're trying to really, um, you know, make every part of the frame look a certain way and you know make sure that like everything looks, you need, you need to have that big monitor. And that's where I think you, you know, I think you, um, a lot of them will rely on a cinematographer and that's great too to have a cinematographer who kind of will check that. But I think in the end it's, it all has to come through the director in the end. And I think it's it's helpful to have those two eyes that way.
1: So like, you'll literally have one of you guys like right next to the set uh, with the camera right next to the actors and the other one will be at the monitor. And, and does that switch? Like, do you guys switch off that responsibility or do you, is it one doing one always, one doing the other always?
5: That is the way, that is the way it happens. You know, what, as you just described, one right next to the actors and one at the monitor. And what the way we've, it's developed is that we actually, um, we, one of us takes the lead for a movie so john was the lead Ah. on this movie we we started doing that a little bit more with bushwick our last film where we did these long takes um where one of us would kind of take like each long take and we had about i don't know 30 different long takes within bushwick so we each kind of split those up and we thought that was kind of a great way to do it but you know that was a very specific kind of movie so now what we're doing is one of us will take the lead on a movie and the other one kind of, you know, works as, as the, uh, kind of as quote unquote co-director. So John was the lead on this one.
0: Do you feel properly credited as a, an art, as artists, if you have to take a step back on a big project like this? No,
5: not at all. Because we've been working together since we were in school and we know that we're doing this for the long term. Like we're going to keep on doing these and that's, there's, there's no, there's like no, uh, it's like the Cohen brothers. They, that's how they work too, where one of them will take mm-hmm. the lead and one of them kind of stays back. And that's what we've kind of learned from is that, um, I think if you're doing this obviously just for the, you know, for the one movie, then of course that's going to be an issue, but we're we're doing this for our lives, so there's no issue with that at all.
1: So as the lead, do you think it's more important to be on set with the actors or by the monitor, making sure the frame is perfect?
4: Uh, I think it's usually as a lead, because of the way we define the lead, I think it could vary vary, very vastly with with other people, but with us, the lead is kind of the the more of the point person. So to be mm. the point person, you have to really be in the thick of it, um, which usually is you know with the actors and with the cinematographer and and you know in our case with the dog handler, with the stunts, with the makeup effects. So you have to be the, the point person. Um, but again, it's not to diminish the person back at the at the um, the monitor because it's a constant back and forth. Like, can you see that? How does that look? I can't. You know, I can't tell. You know, if this is that or you know the the one that really always comes out is the reflections it's like uh you can see the reflection of the camera in that uh lamp or something like that and it's like um you know there's just so many things that can get can slip through if you don't have that back and forth or like you know Kara's saying someone you trust at that bigger monitor um you know so i think it's um you know that's that's kind of the way we define it but uh i think it can go both ways. And, and on this movie,
5: um, uh, the DP, Greta Zuzula, she was operating a lot. She was actually operating the camera a lot. She's like one of those kind of rare cinematographers I think these days who actually, you know, actually shoots with the camera. And I think so she, you know, she was looking through her little small monitor. John was there with her and, uh, you know, they were doing that. And then, um, I had to be at the back of the monitor to kind of like the big monitor to look at those, the, the bigger picture of things.
4: I think the the best way to describe it probably is the uh your the making movies is hard image where the, there's the person by the camera and the person behind them in the director's chairs uh, right. p- pinching their nose <laughs> in uh, frustration like oh my right. god what are you doing
1: yeah no I just I found that really fascinating because um yeah I just directed my first feature in in December um and I was kind of worried about this whole thing because I wanted to be near set as, as possible but I also really believe strongly that like what the camera's seeing is is really the most important thing. Like, I really want to be at the monitor at all times to make sure that we're actually capturing the beautiful performances that are happening in the right way, you know? Um, So I just ended up bringing, like, having the monitor be as close to set as possible. So have, like, a 17-inch monitor, like, as close to the set as they would let me, and then just be able to run from that to to the actors back to the monitor. Um... Which did get frustrating sometimes like you know but um i don't know i was just learning first time
5: no it is and and that's how you learn and and i think and there's there's so many different i mean obviously for years there's been directors who just work i mean most of the movies that we make and love um, are done by one director so it can be done successfully yeah no problem so i I don't think it's like we're not we're not um like opening up a new key of like how things are made (laughs) it's just that for us it was the way to do it and I think um, you know that's that's our process, and I bet you know many directors would say, "Well, I w- I don't want that. I don't want the monitor by me." Or I've heard um, you know Scorsese or something where they they um, they purposely kind of put you know they have their own monitor that no one else can look at, and that's on bigger movies. <laughs> you know we don't have that. We, like right, on a small right. movie, on a small movie, we don't have the the budget to have multiple huge monitors everywhere because. The, you know, in our movie, we needed to have the wardrobe and the um, makeup all be able to look at the big monitors because they're looking at things as right. well to make sure things are going. And, we, you know, we couldn't set up multiple little villages everywhere. Um, so I think that's, you know, there's all different processes, but this is the one
4: that works for us. And just to add a little bit more to even what Liz was saying earlier about credit and everything like that. I think it, it comes down to a lot of trust um, between Carrie and me in terms of, you know, what's happening on the set. It's like when when we when we say that person takes the lead, we we really have to trust that they're making the right decisions, even though as directors, we're all control freaks and we want you know, we want to control everything. And that's even between Carrie and me, we have those disagreements and we real that's kind of why we've come to this decision, because the last thing you want on any film set, especially independent film set, is to like start f- arguing and start right. slowing down the process. So this is a way to streamline the process because as Carrie said, we, we really pre-plan, we really do a lot of the decision making before, but on set there's always, you know there's so much getting thrown at you that you have to trust in your partner that they're making the right decision. And only when you really, really disagree or there is a real issue that you think needs to be elevated, do you kind of step in pause the process which is a really big deal and have a discussion or you know we discuss it over the context um, so other people can't see it um, because that's another thing that we found is just not a good look is um, two directors getting it, getting into it on set but it really is just a matter of you have that trust and you trust it from you know working collaboratively throughout the whole process all the way to the credit in the end is that we trust each other that you know it, it was a collaborative process across the board.
0: And I promise we'll move on, but I just think what you're talking about is so beautiful, (laughs) the idea that this is like a lifelong um, partnership for you two. Um, I really haven't had uh, a lot of uh, interactions with people who have developed relationships in this way. And I guess I just, could you just explain the moment you both realized that you were going to make this lifelong business relationship decision?
5: Well, I mean, I mean, technically, it came when we actually started our. I mean, we we have a corporation, like we have a business. We started it, I think, two years out of school. Uh, we had, and we actually had a third partner there as well. It was a. That's when we we're doing this animation design business. So we started down that path. When you you know create like actually create a business together, that's that's an inc- you know incorporated. That's that's like everything gets tied together. I mean, financials, your your plans, you have to talk about what you're planning for your life, you know, you talk about two-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan. So that's when it kind of really started in terms of that that side of it, but in terms of the movie business, it was it was when that it was that time when we first did our we did our first film and we just both loved it and you we both looked at each other and we're like, "Well, this is the thing that we want to do and how are we going to do it? We need each other because I think we felt like we complemented each other." um, in really kind of cool ways. And it just, we never, at that point thought we'd do feature films. We were doing short films and these commercials, but then it kind of led to feature films. And, um, so in a, in a good way, it happened slowly. So it didn't have to be like, okay, now what's your decision? Do this or that. It kind of evolved over years. I mean, we've been together for over 20 years, so it's not something that, um, that came quickly.
4: And like any, any relationship, it's, uh, it's by no means was there like a, a point where we were like holding hands and, and running across a, a, a field as the sun set. And we knew <laughs> that this not? was <laughs> this was our future. More like uh, lots of arguments, lots oh, of yeah. contradictions and lots of, um, you know, like, is this right? Is this how we do it? I don't know. Right, let's try. And I think it's through that, um, actually getting through those tough times together that you, you know that, you know, like a, a, a sibling that you can kind of, get into a fist fight with and then um come out the other end and, and still be a, a family um i think that's we've kind of uh sowed our relationship in that kind of intensity and,
5: and, and it's still evolving like we're not like i think we'll, we'll, we'll keep on trying to make it you know adjust to things because you know these have all been small movies so then what happens with a bigger movie uh, with, with a bigger budget is that can be the same thing we have to just keep on adjusting and making sure that we don't get stuck in our ways of how things are done because i think then you'll and it just won't work. So yeah, we're, uh, we're always adjusting.
1: So speaking of uh intensity, uh I wanted to hear about the inspiration for Becky. Uh, this is like a pretty intense film, and very serious, you know, um, but also with like a lot of, I guess, big set pieces. So I just wanted to hear like, why did you guys decide to make this film um, as your third feature?
4: Yeah, it's kind of a roundabout story, um, just in terms of I'm sure you guys know is that if you just focus on one getting one movie made you could be setting yourself up for a lot of pain um, which is what we found after um, Cooties. Um, so we we have a lot of films in development even right now we have a, a bunch on the on the table in all various stages with Becky it, it would have just come from our um, our managers and agents um, they, they sent us this script uh, we really love the the premise. And we pitched it to the to the producers, Um, but when we pitched it to the producers, we actually were like, we love this premise, but we think it needs work script wise, getting to the point of delivering on that premise in the way that we think it can. Um, So the producers actually agreed with us and they um, let us choose some writers, uh, Ruckus and Lane, uh, to help kind of redo the script and get it to this place that uh, was you know, really, really intense, really delivering on everything that we thought this idea of a thirteen-year-old girl getting revenge on um, Nazis should be. Um, which I think right now is uh, very much that uh, that cathartic ride that we uh, we all want to see.
0: What helped you get into the mindset of a thirteen-year-old girl? Like, I know that's such a crazy question to ask, but it sounds like it's a a far distant for all of us uh, distance for us to try to run. Wow. My analogies are horrible today, um, <laughs> but go for it. Answer the question in the best way you can.
4: Yeah. Um, well, luckily we did. Uh, Lane, uh, one of the writers is a, uh, is, is female so um, there was at least that aspect of uh, the writing process that we had. Uh, so it wasn't just a bunch of uh, older dudes thinking about that. but I think it, it was something that we thought of from the start in terms of the perspective and how we wanted to film it and hopefully how we executed it was that this really we really wanted this to be almost uh, the way we like the way we started writing it was that we wanted it to be uh, narrated by Becky. Telling the story of what had happened. Um, so we were thinking of it in the terms of uh, an unreliable narrator that she's telling the story, lots of fanciful things could be happening. And then in the end, you're kind of like, wait a minute, well, she just told that story. I don't know if any of it's true. And I think that that comes out of like the perspective of a, a young person dealing with trauma. She lost her mom, she, you know, she lost a lot of. People she loved, and how would she react to that, and how she would kind of be able to narrate that. Um, so in the end, we didn't end up having that narration, but it still was basically how we led the way that we we filmed it and built the character, built the development of every. Kind of action scene, every re- revenge piece. It, that was kind of a roundabout answer, but uh, I think it just it, it's just about getting in the headspace of of someone younger, someone without maybe muscles and the strength of an adult, or the, even the intelligence of an adult, um, or even the logic of an adult. Um, I think which is what drove us uh, as we developed it.
5: And I think it's just also. I mean, we all. I mean, we all were kids, and I think it's it's ways of of using our imagination. Um, because I think we all, we all um, pictured those times in our lives differently. But there are, there are things that you can do to kind of bring that back to life. And we don't have to be so um, – it's not, it's not a documentary. And I think we can use that creativity <laughs> to kind of do things that might have happened during those times and who might not have. But we all live differently during those times. And I think uh, as long as you don't get too caught up in thinking like a 13-year-old would not do this uh, at all, like maybe they would and maybe they could do this, but as long as you can, um, cannot not break the seal of like the, you know, we didn't, this person was uh, not trained. That was one of the big things was that, you know, Becky was never trained. She wasn't, she's not Hannah who was like trained for years by her father to do this. <laughs> right. You know, she's, this is, and she's not, she's not some, she hasn't never taken a class in, in jujitsu or something. Like it, we, we didn't set anything on it up. So as long as we kept to that logic, then I think everything else, Uh, fell into place. And that was a big part of making this film is everything she did to survive, we thought were things that she could, again, use around her house. She used her smarts a lot rather than like her actual uh, physical ability. Um, and she helped, you know, she, we, we kind of, in a, in a cool way, we thought we'd set up the dogs that people thought the dogs are going to be the ones that kind of like help her. And, you know, we kind of, we, we wanted to subvert expectations a little bit and use the dogs in different ways. So, um, yeah, we had, we had fun with, with kind of the whole process of, of getting inside the 13 year old's mind.
1: So you mentioned uh, when you first found the project that um, you know you you did some rewriting to it and hired these writers, brought them on. But I'm just curious, like, how did you find the story in the first place? I mean, it
4: was it was as simple as that. The managers uh, had sent us the script. Okay. You know the the so the, what happens usually is I think producers or you know film finance companies they they contact um, the agencies and the managers and say they got the script and, and you know then. The, I guess the managers or, you, or agents choose directors to pitch on it. Well, I mean,
5: they, they came to us specifically, you know, cause they, they liked Bushwick. So they knew, they knew, the producers knew about us and they, they came to our managers and said, look, you know, we like these guys um, for what they've done. Do you, can they take a look at this, at this script? And then it was kind of sent us that way. So, and it was, it was a first, it was a, a script that um, they, they really liked. It was from a first time writer. And so that's, so they wanted, they actually wanted people to, you know, give their ideas and how they could, um, you know, enhance the script. And that was something that we worked on a lot.
1: So did you guys have to do a pitch on it or was it kind of just like given to you? If you want it, you got it kind of thing.
5: No, it was a, it was a pitch. It was a, it was a visual pitch. Um, We've gone on Skype with them and, and uh, and we talked through our ideas with them. And it was, it was kind of a, I think they, I think they, we knew that they liked us. it was, and we don't know if, you know, in terms of how many other people they were considering for it, or we don't know the backstory to that, but we knew they liked us, but we had to like, we had, we had big changes for it. So we, we didn't, you know, we didn't assume anything. So when, uh, when we talked with them, we said our, went through all of our ideas with them and they seemed to be on board with it. Um, yeah, you know, and then we waited a little bit, and then we came
4: back, and they uh, we agreed to move forward with that with that way.
1: How do you prepare for that meeting? Because
4: we work on commercials as well, which you know it, is every it's the pitch process is like um, the pitch process for features, just on a much different scale. But the the idea is you're still going up against a bunch of other directors, and the only thing that's going to win it is your specific point of view and the clarity of vision of expressing that point of view. So whatever it takes to get that vision across, I think is what's going to make you win it. But in the end, it really is going to be like, is the, whoever's paying for the the film or the commercial, in line or excited about your vision, because I think you could go all out. You could do um, which we've even done before and, and lost. Is you know we've filmed scenes, we've we've um, you know we've spent a lot of money doing uh, crazy lookbooks, filming scenes, um, really going all out to, to win pitches. And in the end, that that hasn't won for us. I, and I think with this, it was just really about that we had a very very specific clear vision. Of, of what we thought we could do with this premise to make it really sing. And in the end, I, it was, uh, I think we did a lookbook. We pretty much always do a lookbook, which is mostly like a, like a, almost like a mood board. Um, so that could be like up to 30, 40 pages of, of images that we talk about the theme, you know, pretty standard stuff. The theme, uh, the look, the the characters, um, and, you know, style, um, and just kind of how, it's like a way to visualize and walk through something visually of how we see it. And then in terms of the, the script, we usually dig really deep into that and talk about that and that you know that's through the characters and, and everything else. But um, with this one, yeah, it really was just talking through um, our lookbook and talking through how we think that the, that we could take the, the script to the place that, that it needs to be.
5: One thing we've learned over, over time is that it does help Um, especially these days with how um, movies are put together is it, it helps to go in with an idea of if it's not the full cast, it's at least your lead actors of suggestions of who um, the actors are. And you have to, um, I think the more you kind of get to know the business, it's, it's a mixture of creative and of like who, who is right for the part and then who might actually get, we might get for the part. And who could who is the one that can kind of get a movie made like this? And I think it's um, you don't necessarily have to think you're going to get that exact actor, but you I think it shows it shows the producers that you are thinking in a realistic way. Like if you're doing if you know, if we're doing this movie and we suggest um, Denzel Washington for one of the roles, they're like, well, that's, we're not going to get Denzel Washington for a three million dollar movie for this kind of thing. But you, if you start to like um say this actor will work for this you at least you're getting in the same ballpark so it helps to kind of give suggestions for actors because you also have to think that the producers are looking at you as like well we're going to spend time with these directors for possibly the next year or so putting this together and we have to feel like we're on the same page with what they're going to be thinking um so that's kind of all those kind of elements can help um, make a relationship uh, work for the first time.
0: What is your representation doing at this point? So the producers approached you through your representation. It wasn't as if the representation was soliciting or going out and, and sourcing material for you. And then you're you're doing the pitch to the producers. What, what are your agents and managers doing uh, to further this project along in this very beginning phase?
4: it actually was a really um, amazing collaborative experience with, with the managers and agents because they brought it to us. So then it's like, it's almost like a a game of um, it's like a a relay race where you keep passing the baton back and forth. So they pass the baton to us, we pitched it, we won it. So then it's like, we're passing the baton back to them. So they have to help get financiers and um, cast. And then, and that's always like a game where it's like, well, some financiers will be like, well, let us know when you get some cast involved. And then some cast will be like, let us know when you get financing. And you're like, oh my God, uh, well, you know, how how can we do one without the other? Um, But in this case, the agent was awesome in terms of helping us get um, the cast involved and the financiers involved. So they were actually kind of doing both at the same time. And, um, you know, they were really... um, helpful in getting Lulu involved, getting Kevin James involved, uh, Joel McHale involved. Uh, so, but it was all, that was all happening kind of simultaneously and very much through UTA. Um, they really, really, um, spearheaded that, that part of it. Um, so we were really lucky and, and you know, that ended up really helping get the movie made.
5: Yeah. I think this, this was that example. I mean, the other two films were done differently because we, we actually weren't with, um, agents even, or kind of during those two, our first other two films, so we worked out the most differently. But this is a perfect example of how an, an agency can help a director make a pretty. This is a challenging movie, um, a radar movie with a 13 year old girl as the lead. Is just a very challenging movie to to, to sell in terms of like finance, finance, uh, financiers. And so UTA was able to kind of really help, kind of get a challenging movie put to the right people, um, and and actually then made that way.
0: they act as casting directors i mean it sounds like they they connected you to talent but did they get casting credit
5: no no it's for the leads anything like this is is like they give a list of people um that might be available um and it's usually a pretty long list it could be up to 20 or 30 people for each role and then we kind of like choose like who we think we kind of give like a top three of like here are the top three we want to um go after and then we go down the list and luckily it was actually quick, this was kind of a quick one um, in terms of like getting, um, you know, Lulu was from the very beginning, someone we wanted to work with. And once she was at UTA, it was like, okay, this is going to work. And then uh, we did have Simon Pegg um, in the role for Kevin James originally. Um, and then a, a scheduling issue happened with Simon. He had to drop off and Kevin was actually going to play the Joel McHale role, the father role.
1: Oh, oh, wow.
5: And so Kevin, you know, he'd read the full script and then once Simon dropped off, Kevin was like, you know, guys, I really like the I want to try to do the the bad guy role. I've never done that before. Nice. I think it's a great kind of really well written role. Um, what do you guys think? And so then we talked with Kevin uh, over Skype and he kind of like it was amazing. Like he got the, he got it. He want, he, he was going to he was going to pull back. He wanted to go full in with all the you know, you've seen the movie. There's lots of tattoos and it's a pretty extreme role. And he wanted to go, he wanted to do that. Um, And so that was kind of cool for us to to get someone who was that passionate about it and who would kind of take that step to do something different that he's never done before.
1: Was that always the plan? I mean, I guess it was. to like have, because I I don't know if you really call Simon Pegg a comedic actor, but um, you know, casting these comedic actors in the serious film, I mean, was Joel McHale like the next in line on your list of people or how did he come into play?
4: To just even back up to what Liz was asking before in terms of UTA being casting, I think the way it really ultimately starts is us kind of pushing pushing like what we are looking for to them and, and some ideas to them, then they come back with that list. So right from the start, it's something that we've really liked, really liked doing with our casting like we've done in some of our previous films is taking actors that are known for something and really subverting that in terms of what they're gonna be in the movie that we're making like Batista and Brittany Snow in Bushwick. Uh, we really knew like with Simon Pegg and Kevin James in this role, in this film, we knew to, we didn't want um, someone who's known for playing the bad guy, someone that you just immediately are thinking, oh, this guy is, you know, they're gonna be this jerk. Um, we liked the idea of, of having someone that's a, more of like a charismatic, or at least at first glance under the right conditions can really just come across as like you know, the guy next door and and just be kind of charismatic and, and likable. And you know, who's more likable than Kevin James, you know, he's just like the, the lovable guy. So we love that idea of that, you know, he can kind of work his way into the house, you know, talking about his lost dog. And then when he flips it and starts spouting this hateful, you know, neo-Nazi rhetoric, you're just completely taken off guard like the people in the house and then it keeps elevating and those initial thoughts that, and feelings you had for that character are, or, or that actor are just, you know, really spinning in your head and um, I think it's just that, that idea of, that we bring so much baggage to, to movies now with the, with the stars and with the actors that um, taking that baggage and playing with it.
1: Can you talk about finding the rest of the cast? How did you, how did you guys come to Joel McHale?
4: Well, we will tell you a funny quick story about that. Was um, we did have this kind of start and stop with when Simon Pegg bailed out. We were like, oh, it's over, we lost Simon. And then, you know, that Kevin kind of came in quickly. We, we kind of had to revamp up pre-production quickly. And at that point, uh, we had thought we had cast the character of Jeff, which is um, Becky's dad, which Joel ended up playing but so that all shifted. So then we really needed to move fast. Um, so, you know, we had this list and we had some availability and we were already up in the middle of nowhere, farmland in, in Canada, um, prepping. So we needed to get on the phone with Joe McHale and see if we were on the same page with him and, and see if we could get him cast. Um, but there was no cell phone service. So the only way we could do a call with him was to pull up to the back of a restaurant in, Canada and you try to tap into the Wi-Fi in our car so you know we can't have a a meeting in a restaurant because you can't tell everyone to shut up while you talk to Joel McHale (laughs) Um, but so we pull up in the back of this restaurant tap into the Wi-Fi we have our you know our camera doing a video chat on in in our dashboard so it looks like we're driving so Joel McHale is just wondering what the hell we're doing the restaurant owner is yelling at us because we're you know, we ran over some tube or something and that that's uh, water. <laughs> and it was just like one of those moments where you're like, oh, my God, this is not the Hollywood I imagined. Um, but we had a great call with with Joel um, and he came on. And, and even though he had a full on tour that summer, so he was flying in and out. He would do a day of shooting with us, fly across America, do a, a stand up comedy show and uh, come back and oh, um, and shoot another day with us. Um, but it was like all those things so we're talking to him. He's saying, I don't know. I have this tour. I want to do it. We are like, we want you to do it. And then that's just the first step. And you know, there's all this other contractual and logistical stuff you have to work out.
5: And it was so I mean, Joel is so amazing. I mean, and this, this was a, this was a kind of a different role for him. He was not, he was, he was little, it was a very sincere role. Uh, he was, you know, as you as you kind of see in the movie where he's not, he's not making jokes the whole time. He's, He's Someone who kind of loves his daughter, they've been through some things together. He's trying to make it work in a very complex situation with his family, and he has to step up at a certain time when he's you can kind of see his character probably hasn't done that, or there's something off with his character where it's he's kind of feels like he's something's been wrong in the past. And so, it's a, it's a kind of cool role for, for Joel to play that. Um, and, and we just kind of loved him being involved that way. And you know, John mentioned the 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 uh the tour, I mean, it was something where. Joel would come and he'd have to take naps um, in a different room of the house when we weren't filming because he was just so tired and he was just but he was so dedicated to making this this role happen because he wa- he was so into the project so it was like we had just an amazing group of people putting this thing together and and every every person put everything they could into it.
0: Were Joel and Kevin interested in part to turn their image around to take on darker material in order to? Uh, be considered for more
5: dramatic roles in the future i mean i don't know if it was like turning their image around i think they just saw an opportunity to do something that they hadn't done so i don't i don't think it was as calculated as like let me turn my image I mean, especially Joel. joel's been through he's done a lot in his career like if you look at his imdb in terms of different kinds of roles i think he's known for obviously for jeff winger and community um, which is like his iconic role but He's done a lot of dramatic things in the past. He just likes to do, and he has a great movie that was actually going to play in Tribeca, which was a very dramatic role as well. Kevin, I think, because he hadn't done something like this before, maybe he was thinking that it would just give him uh, more room to play for the future. But I think they're both such veteran actors that they're not really thinking about changing their image, more just like opening up like what they can do in the future.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was very impressive. I mean, like I was like seeing those names in in the credits, you just assume there's gonna be a little little bit of joking around, like a little bit of comedy, and then to have like such a straight, like straightforward, serious, like no bullshit movie was, and then to, to believe them in the roles and like you know be charmed by them or scared of them or whatever it was, uh, it was pretty good, man. Great job.
5: I think also add like because of the the cast around them. I mean, we had Kevin, you know, Kevin James and, and Joel McHale. Everyone else is pretty known. Is pretty much known for being dramatic actors. Um, whether it's even if you don't quite know them, like they they they've done some pretty dramatic things. So I think you have to, as as directors, kind of think of the full picture. I mean, Amanda Brugel, you know, coming from *Handmaid's Tale*, is like uh, in terms of the adult side of things, she brings just a whole different side of of. of 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 the craft of acting and it was it was having her as the core between these two guys um was so helpful and she's just i mean her 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 scenes are just electric and then lulu you know lulu's like known as one like the most talented young actors um actresses for all these kind of like horror and you know sharp objects she does kind of very dramatic roles so having her as the real lead I think helps set the tone for the whole film.
1: Yeah, it was so funny. I had just seen her as Riker's daughter in the Picard show, and yeah, you know she was right. great in that. And then like watching this movie, I was like, oh my god, she's so different.
5: <laughs> yeah, she was filming that. She filmed that. I think that was after.
4: No, it was right before. It was right, right before? before. Okay, right because they wanted her to change her hairstyle or something, and we, gotcha. we were like, ah, oh, no. Yeah, that's right. That's-
0: <laughs> I want to talk about distribution. Distribution, guys. Distribution at the top of your trailer. Uh, the you know the little production imagers, reference Quiver and Redbox. Can you talk a little bit about the Redbox deal? Or, I mean, just, it it felt like a blast from the past, but it sounds like uh, they've evolved their brand to do a little bit more. Can you talk about uh, the aggregating of companies involved with the making of the film and then the output of it?
5: We can talk very, like, tertiary about it. I mean, we know, um, you know, Quiver and Redbox, um, you know, Quiver's a a new company, uh, relatively new. and they they come from a technology background of being able to distribute um, independent movies, and now yeah, they're, they're an aggregator. Yeah, and they're starting to then acquire indie movies mm-hmm. as a way to kind of get the word out. And then Redbox, um, yeah, you know, yeah, we're known they're known as that place where you can go get DVDs in the big Redbox, you know, place in in supermarkets or things. But this they've they've developed and they're they're acquiring movies too, and because I think they they know that um, there's an opportunity to. If they get the right kind of movies that get the uh, enough attention, it'll kind of get people to, you know, think of them as as ways to kind of get new movies. And they partnered to, um, as they thought, the combination of this, the thriller kind of horror genre mixed with uh, the cast that we had, that it could be, you know, bonkers for them. I think a lot of the Kevin James movies um, they've had in the past have done well. And even though this is very different in terms of the kind of movie um, that Kevin James is known for uh because it's in this thriller kind of horror action you know space that um they thought it could be good for them I mean we aren't involved with that part of it at all we we actually didn't even know Redbox was involved I mean I I mean I don't think they came on until after it was done Quiver was in from the beginning um but you know that's all stuff that the both the producers and the uh, our agents kind of set up and we focus on making a movie as long as as long as we told that we can actually get on set and make it, then that's something that we're we're excited about. But it was nice um, to know that the movie was going to get distribution, um, you know, while we were making it. And I think that's that's exciting for us to not have to worry so much about like, oh, is this going to get you know put out there? So it was nice that way.
1: This is a question I've been asking a lot of, uh, you know, more successful directors, but like, what advice do you have for filmmakers who are maybe making their first or their second features and, you know, just trying to to get the next thing going and actually make more movies? Like what, what would you say to those people?
4: Persistence, <laughs> passion, and, um, uh, just the, the, the ability to deal with rejection and sticking to your guns. Um, because it, it it's just something that we've learned throughout the years is that, you know, we have just we're we're when we first started, we were we're thinking, oh, we're the directors. This is easy compared to what an actor has to go through. An actor has to go into a casting room and maybe do five castings a day and just get rejected, rejected, rejected. And you're so dependent on the director. Um, But now we've learned that it's kind of the same thing happens with directing is that whether it's your own project that you've written from the ground up, or uh, you know, a project you know that you you kind of pitch on. Um, you're pitching constantly. You're you're developing projects constantly, and at every step of that that process, there's rejection and setbacks. So just being persistent, just having a clear vision, and um, you know, keep honing your craft. Because uh, I think uh, nowadays you can you can just keep getting better and better at it, uh, whether you're you're getting a big budget or you have no money.
5: And then I think find something personal in the story. Find something that, um, that whether it's the, whether it's a character or a theme or something that is that relates to you. And you can change it. I mean, you, if someone, if you find a movie that you love, but it's not quite there, but, but you see there's something you can add to it. You know, take the risk and like change a character, change a plot line that you feel like makes it more personal to you. Because then that will give you that in on on how you how either. Again, whoever you're trying to help, um, however you're trying to get this made, if you can tell it comes from a personal side of things, people will then respond to that. So I think any way you can do that, um, again, whether the script is sent to you or whether, especially if you're developing yourself, make sure it's very personal to like how, how you see the world and how you feel like your vision can be something that no one else can do. Because there's so many directors out there, so many like just people making movies that like, for someone to decide to make a movie with you, it ha- you have to really stand out in some way. So take the risk, know that sometimes that risk is not going to be, is not going to be successful, but then be ready to do it again. And don't feel like because you failed that one time that it's not going to be, you know, not going to have a chance to do it again, because it's not, it, you are, you're going to keep on going. If you can keep on going. And, and as you said, John said, be, be rejected and keep trying, then something will happen.
0: And you guys are super fancy. I mean, you guys just got your suited up. you your reps, your projects are coming to you. Do you feel fancy? Do you feel like you've made it? What does it feel like?
5: No way. No way. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, as soon as you, um, anybody feels like that. We, I'm, it's funny, I'm, I'm reading, I'm listening to a podcast about Peter Bogdanovich. It's on uh, TCM, has this great new podcast. And they're doing, the, it's a whole season about Peter. And he's the ultimate example of this, where his first three films were like, every, each one of them was nominated for Academy Awards. They were huge hits. They, he was thought as the next Orson Welles. Like he was, he was dating people, had tons of money. And then his next three movies after those first three were total flops. And then he, was, he almost couldn't make a movie. There was articles about the, the final, it was um, uh, one of the last three of the films, like this is the last one he's gonna make. And so that's, it just shows you how things can change and how someone who had everything can be, can have nothing. So we would, we would hope we would never feel that way, especially because of, you know, what, where we've come from. We've been working our whole, whole life to kind of make this happen. So yeah, we never feel fancy.
4: I, I think that's actually like a, it's kind of an interesting thing. And it's uh, that idea that you actually have to. I think the best thing to do is just keep going too. Sometimes you can kind of lock yourself up being afraid to pull the trigger because you're, you're like, well, I only have this one chance. But I can guarantee you it's better to like take your chance, even if you have to make some compromises and, and you know, because of budget or because of something, you know, make make it. Just make it and then move on um, is, is – um, because in the end it's like, you don't know Yeah, you know th- that you could get just bad reviews. And so get it going and then work on the next one. So, um, you can just keep having, keep making stuff, I think is the best, best approach.
5: Cause we know people who kind of get caught up and like, we have, has to be perfect before I do it. And it's, it's great to get as perfect as possible, but then if you're willing to be that, if you, if you pass on that for that to be your only chance, Okay, fine. If you want to have that integrity, like this is my one time and it has to be that or nothing, you can go for it, but then you might not get a chance again.
0: I think we're um, at the end of our main interview and moving on to our final five questions. Let's you have any other things to add?
1: Oh, no. I mean, I have a million trillion questions, but we only <laughs> have so much time. So I think we should get to the, the last five.
0: <laughs> All right. So first question is, what's the first project or film you've worked on and how do you feel about it now?
4: Was it Shortest Race? It shortest Race, right? Shortest yeah, race, race. yeah. Because we have been doing animations, and Nike at the time was uh, uh, asking uh, young directors to do stuff. So we pitched the shortest race, which was. Uh, do you remember how long it was, Carrie? How long that 20... film was? No, the the race. Oh, <laughs> the
5: the race was three. So Nike asked directors to pitch on um, do something about speed, and they thought we might do animation. We they didn't quite know. So we pitched our first live action project, and so we did this. Um, we pitched an idea about the shortest race ever, ever ran. And it was, we called mm. it the shortest race. And the whole race was 39.9 inches long. And we filmed it <laughs> as this kind of like, kind of best in show sort of like um, documentary, but actually kind of real where we got about 40 different people um, uh, to the armory, which was a big uh, in, indoor track in, uh, uh, in Manhattan. And we filmed all the one night we, we filmed heats. Of people doing this shortest race, um, and they were actually were trying. We had a, we had a they could have won seven hundred dollars, so everyone was trying to win it. And we filmed interviews. We had a super slow motion ca- uh, camera called the Photosonic, um, where it filmed I think a thousand frames per second. And it was our first. It was the first time filming anything live action, let alone using this massive film camera. And we put we we were our own producers. Uh, we were our own we we got mostly actors from friends and Craigslist. And we got set up multiple little digi- digital cameras everywhere. And we made this like eight minute documentary slash film about this shortest race. And then we edited our, ourselves, did the, our own graphics, presented it to Nike. They loved it. We, they did a whole film series where they did, uh, they took the 10 directors around and, and they did all these, um, screenings. Uh, Joseph Kaczynski was actually one of the other directors. He did um, Tron and uh, Oblivion. He was one of the other directors on that that group. Um, And it was our first foray into doing live action. And then we did some more films with Nike. And that kind of like... Led to us um, filming uh, live action,
4: but we were so naive with the shortest race that we got on set and it came with this. You know, the the photosonic camera came with an actual film crew because it's such a specialized piece of equipment, and we started filming. and the The camera operator turns to to us and goes, "Um, "You kind of have to." direct the actors <laughs> we were like it's just all gonna happen right we were we literally had never directed a- actors before at that point and had no idea what was you know what was supposed to happen but uh yeah I was just uh, jumping in and, and learning and we and that's wow, still one of our awesome. I mean we still love it it's still
5: like a really fun project it's it has that kind of best and so quality where you don't quite know who's real and who's not and like there's a great shot in it where um, there's one guy who has um it's one of John's friends who he came to, to, to run, and he had he had just broken his leg, and so he was on crutches and had um, uh, pins still in his ankle, and yet he oh, but he could he could run the race essentially because he just fell onto a pad, and so we interview him as he's talking. He's like, "I'm on crutches and I have this these pins in my leg," and people are like, "Is that real? Like like what is going on with this with this guy?" And it was it was a real guy, and so we had this. Kind of, it was a really kind of cool weird project.
1: I well, I found it so it'll be in the show notes for everybody yeah, to watch go it, for it. It's yeah. on your, on your Vimeo page. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
4: You know, we've listened to all the, the the podcast, the the behind the scenes, the director commentaries and it's all just so different that you, you just absorb it all and and try to make it. Yeah, but your-
5: no one that actually like no one person that gave us the advice. I think what we've learned is that there's uh, Hopefully what you've also gotten from this is that there's many different ways to do something. And I think you can kind of choose people that to follow that you feel like are closer to you, but there's no one way to do something and
4: you just kind of do what works for you.
0: Do you have a goal as a filmmaking duo?
4: We have lots of goals. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, we, we just... I think one of the biggest things that we've been striving to do is a maybe a bigger budget sci-fi movie. Um, you know, We love all genres, which I think is evident in the, the kind of diversity of, of the things we've directed from our comedic commercials to uh, uh, comedy horror to action to um, this kind of revenge thriller. Um, but I think one of the bigger goals is to, to do a, a more broad sci-fi movie because um, that's just kind of the, some of the movies that we've loved, um, and it's just, I would say that Bushwick was a sci-fi movie, um, but i um, trying to do something on a broader scale um, because, you know, we love movies like Blade Runner and Star Wars, and they were just so pivotal in our in growing up and our love for film that um, to actually be able to execute something on that scale is, uh, is a nice long-term goal.
5: And I think just to always be evolving and and learning and doing new things, I, and I think that's why, in a good good or bad way, each one of our films is different um, because we like to try not try out new things and um, work with people in different ways, work with new crews, um, work with different people. So yeah, it's, it's always just trying to not sit on our laurels. And we could have done after Cooties, we got a lot of horror comedy scripts. We could have just, you know kept on doing that. Even and after Bushwick, we got a lot of like more traditional action films. Um, and we, we thought, well, let's, let's try, you know, let's do a little something different. We got even people ask us, can you do one take films? Like that's, we're getting those kind of things. And, you know, as you see from Becky, there's, it's a lot of like quick cutting and like different ways of making, <laughs> right. fi- you know, it's a different filmmaking process. And so I think we just want to keep on evolving. That's one of our goals is to keep on evolving.
1: If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourselves?
4: I think that uh, it might be uh, it might be secret. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> think a, it,
0: and then we'll just have like this nice silence.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, no, I think there's a there's a few very pivotal moments in the in our our careers where I think Carrie and I have discussed. That maybe we should have made a different decision here, a different decision there, or not listen to somebody's uh, advice or something like that. But it's so hard to tell, you know. It's it's like everything kind of happens for a reason, and in the end, you could kind of like look back with a little frustration. But who knows, you know? It, maybe it would have made something easier, or it could have just led down another path that it, it isn't as good. So um, I think for the most part um pretty thankful for for everything that's gotten us to here.
5: yeah and i think it, it is just it's, it goes back to one of the other questions is persistence of telling yourself to just be persistent and not um and not worry about it if something doesn't happen i think that's where it comes from you can get frustrated from something not happening and it's yeah just keep on going
0: it is making movies hard <laughs>
4: definitely yeah oh we never even got into all the, the the challenging aspects of making this movie but uh if there is a list i think we checked off every box <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean you guys have like tons of practical effects multiple kills out exteriors like at night and daytime ex- i mean you got it all so water, um, dogs, water, water, water dogs
5: kids yeah it's like it they they always it's like we basically did Nice, you know, nice It's everything that they say, oh, you pick one or two of those things, but we put them all together and in a kind of a, a low budget movie, which then, you know, makes it even
4: harder. So, and, um, and I think the thing that people don't understand is that, that they say these things are hard. So, you, you might get on set and you'd be like, well, working with this child actor is really easy. You know, Lulu Wilson is so talented. I, I don't know why they say working with kids is harder. But really, what it comes down to is that you have less time with kids so that's what makes it harder beyond the fact that you know sometimes you don't get as lucky and you don't get a talented actor like lulu but there's just so little time and when you add dogs and stunts stunts take a long time because you have to prep all the safety uh you know dogs just don't do it on the first try ever so you have to do it a million times to get it you know even remotely close to what you hope can be achieved. So it's just that all those things on that list of, uh, you know, of painful, uh, things to avoid when making your first film, uh, is just because it just eats up that precious time.
1: Wow. Perfect. Well, guys, this has been great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening and thanks to Jonathan and Carrie for being on the show and for Priscilla Rios from Katrina one PR for setting up this interview uh, and go out and watch Becky on VOD. Or if you're lucky enough that you live near a drive in movie theater and Becky is playing, see it on the big screen. I mean, this movie is intense. It's beautifully shot. It's like got a lot of exteriors, which are just gorgeous. And then it's a lot of amazing gore. So if you're a gore fan type of person and you like kills, uh, this movie does not disappoint on the kill factor. Uh, let me tell like you kills. <laughs> I mean, Hey man, I love kills. I, I love all the different type of kills. Like, you know, they're a, the horror movie. Kill like, uh, art is, is something that is really special. And, uh, we didn't really get to talk to, to John and Carrie about the, the art of their kills. Um, we did a whole episode about this with someone else, which was great. Um, but yeah, the kills, it's, uh, yeah, very interesting. So, um, but uh, if you like this episode and you want to see more from God, John and Carrie, you can go to com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode, including uh, John and Carrie's first uh, ever short film.
0: The Shortest Race. It sounds so good. Uh,
1: and they also have, like, hundreds and hundreds of other videos on their Vimeo uh, channel of all their commercials. We didn't talk about it at all, but they're, like, really established, like, high-level commercial directors also, like, done commercials for everybody, basically. So, um, yeah, aside from their other movies, Cooties and Bushwick, you could just check out their commercials and their work. Um you can also uh, send us an email if you want to get in contact with us and, uh, you know, tell us anything. Tell us how much you liked the John and Carrie episode. Tell us uh, who you'd love us uh, to, to talk to next. Uh, we would love to know what, who those people are. But you can send that email to podcast at com, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIH Podcast, MMIH Podcast. I am R.B. on Twitter and Instagram. And Liz, where can you be found?
0: At Liz Manichel on Twitter.
1: And please, if you like the show, tell a friend, spread the word. You could leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the other places that they allow you to leave reviews. And finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holdsman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Allison Stoney, and the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to you guys next week.
0: We love Bloodstream.
1: Bloodstream!
5: What? What? <laughs>
0: Wait, are you listening to music? Am I listening to
1: music? No, it's uh, stupid at the office uh, in the background. Um, (laughs) My (laughs) wife is insisting I'm playing really loud. Um, But hold on.
0: Oh, now I have everyone's attention. I can say whatever I want in this moment. What should I say? What should I say?